Welcome to Zen Bones, ancient wisdom for modern times. This is Mark Lesser. Why Zen Bones? Our world is in crisis and ever-shifting, and now, more than ever, more wisdom, clarity, and courage are essential, especially in the world of work, business, and leadership. My guest today is Jane Hirschfield. David Baker from the New York Times described her as one of our finest, most memorable contemporary poets. In 2019, she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I've known Jane for many, many years. We were students together at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, and I thought our conversation was quite wonderful, enlightening, and intimate. She reads a variety of poems about optimism, surprise, and embracing the fullness of the world. I'm excited to share my conversation with Jane Hirschfield. This is Mark Lesser and Zen Bones, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Times, and I am very happy to welcome my dear friend and poet and human Jane Hirschfield. Hello, Jane. Hello, Mark. Lovely to be here with you. So Jane and I were hanging out many, many years ago at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center. And one of the stories that I don't know if this actually happened or not, but someone purportedly said that they asked you what you were going to be when you left Tassajara. And you said, I'm going to be a poet. And, and, here, and here you are. Here I am, more to my surprise now than perhaps my hopes then. Um, now when people remind me of such things, I think, what hubris. How on earth could I have hoped for such a life? Um, and now I look back and I think, how amazing. I'm a person who actually uh, the fates have allowed to do what it is I most wanted to do from childhood. Um, that's luck as much as whatever it was that I did that brought me here. It's also luck. And I never want to forget that. I don't think I ever asked you what brought you to Zen and Zen Center. Ah, well, poetry did, of course, <laughs> and life. Um, but my exposure to Buddhist ideas, thoughts, and imagery began when I was eight years old and, uh, on the Lower East Side of New York City, Manhattan, walked into a stationery store with my allowance money in my pocket and chose a book off those spiral-bound display cases that they had up near the front. And for some reason, the book that I brought home with me was a book of Japanese haiku. And I'm sure I understood nothing of what is uh, truly meant by haiku in those days, but something drew me. And as I, in retrospect, when I look back on my life, no matter what I was reading, and this includes the Western tradition as much as the Eastern tradition, every time I nodded and said to myself, ah, that's a worldview that feels right to me. That's a way of being that feels right to me and a set of awarenesses that I recognize as true. Every time it turned out to be things that are in accord with the teaching 
of Zen and of Buddhism. And, you know, sometimes that could be the Epicurean and Stoic poets of ancient Rome, and sometimes it could be Heraclitus, and sometimes it could be uh, ancient Chinese poets. Uh, But when I was uh, graduating from college, a friend of mine had a copy of the Tassajara Bread Book. And in the early days, the inside back cover of the Bread Book had the monastic schedule on it, which was how I knew there was a Zen monastery. And so when my life was opened up, I did a year of farm labor after graduating from college and then set out across country in a red Dodge van with tie-dyed curtains looking for my future, uh, which I thought was going to be, you know, a waitress somewhere beautiful and writing poems in a cabin someplace. But I knew Tassahar existed and I was curious and I went to see what it was and uh, ended up staying within the three Zen Center communities for eight years of full-time training and practice. And then practice returned me to poetry, just as poems had brought me to practice. Um, and now they both go forward in, in uh, left foot, right foot ways in my life. Interesting that uh, that Tassahara bed book, which was actually my first, I was <laughs> living in San Francisco and there it was on the shelf, and it. Next thing I knew, I was walking in the door of Three Hundred Page Street. Ah, we share that. Everybody else seemed to come because of Alan Watts, you know, radio programs. I'd never heard an Alan Watts radio program, mm-hmm. um, but I had read a lot of ancient Japanese poetry, and I had mm-hmm. come across the Bread Book. And you mentioned you're um, you're going to be spending some time in Ireland, doing on, I a, on am. a fellowship. So I am the. Uh, Third Seamus Heaney International Visiting Poetry Fellow for this year. They had invited me for last year, but the pandemic was still too unpredictable then, so we we put it off for a year. So I will be based at Queen's College, which has a Seamus Heaney Center. And this rather means the world to me because Seamus and I were friends. And so to be going to Northern Ireland for the first time. I've been to the Republic, but I've never been to Northern Ireland with his arm around my shoulders. That means a great deal to me. That sounds wonderful. So this practice, you know, the practice of poetry, the practice of Zen, and this crazy mixed up world. I woke up this morning like, what a world, looking at the look, looking at the newspaper. It's like, is this is this really happening? Is this like, how could this, how could this be? And actually I was rereading last night, your writing in your book, 10 windows, the chapter on surprise, Mm. which uh, I really love. I love that. Yeah. And, and so much of, I think in some way, I mean, waking up and looking at the newspaper was all about surprise as was in Zen, the world of Zen and the world of poetry. So I think it's wonderful that you're kind of unpacking that and talking about this as, and I almost see it as a healing property or waking up property. And I wonder what's surprising to you these days. Oh, everything is surprising to me. Um, So, you know, surprise really is the great unrecognized emotion 
of our life or neurochemistry of our life, perhaps, in that surprise is what throws open the brain's portals to recognize something new and changed. And I have become more and more interested in this moment of permeability and vulnerability that surprise offers us. Um, I, one of the things which interests me, so there was a long time ago, a study was done, which has, which has stayed in my mind, where they, when the neuroscientists were first beginning to study meditation, and they would put people into a um, fMRI machine and monitor their brains. And normal people, if you ring a bell repeatedly every 50 seconds, eventually the, the attention extinguishes itself and the sound of the bell no longer evokes any, any big response uh, in, in the uh, brainwaves. But when they put experienced meditators in the same situation, every ring of the bell evoked a fresh and complete response. It was always new. Now, one thing that I have noticed about myself in the past years of um, since the results of the 2016 election and everything that led up to it, I have noticed I never get over my shock and my surprise at what has happened to a country that I thought I knew but obviously did not know. And, you know, I, I hear some other people speak and it sounds as if they've somehow acclimated to the truth of this. But for me, as you described yourself this morning, every single day I look at the newspaper and I am freshly stunned by who we are, and I mean the large we, I mean the entire, not only the American culture, but the world's culture. And can you imagine being in Britain right now with what's going on there? It is just as chaotic. And then in completely other ways, imagine being in Ukraine this morning. Imagine being a refugee trying to cross the Mediterranean this morning. Imagine being a young woman in Iran protesting the headscarf enforcement this morning. It is, as somebody who came of age into the first Earth Day in 1970, I was a young person then. And I looked at that event and I thought the world was going to change. Mm -hmm. It is 50 years from that day. Everything we needed to know, we knew in spring 1970, April 22nd, the first Earth Day. We had seen a photograph of the whole Earth. We knew the environmental crisis that only now are governments beginning to take seriously and respond to. We could have done this 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. The civil rights movement was in full cry in the 60s when I was a child. Mm -hmm. How can we have made such little progress? The ideas of Buddhism, of compassion, of 
not clinging to some sense of self and other, that was also completely available to us. You know, by the time you and I were children, how is it that these truths have not yet been found worth embracing? And that is, for me, one of the great koans of the age, is how the forces of fear and reification and, forgive me, um, greed have managed to forestall the obvious that is needed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm fond of saying that greed, hate, and delusion have been quite popular for at least, at least 2,500 years. It is stunning, right? It's stunning. I think both the, the sense of hope that you described and the sense of not exactly hopelessness, but the, the despair of turning back this, like this, it looked like, so maybe it's, maybe the lesson is it's just not a, it's not a straight line. Uh, perhaps we're still, you know, again, there's the, maybe it's my uh, cautious optimism um, that likes to think that, well, there's something, there's, yeah, it's it's also amazing, you know, looking at how much people's consciousness seems to be growing around Buddhism and meditation. That those those ideas continue to grow and spread, uh, and partly through people like you and your work, right? That you are in stealth and not so stealth ways bringing consciousness into the world through your writing and your poetry. Well, that is, you know, poetry is such a small backwater in the culture. But somehow over the centuries, a few lines of poetry have stayed with people, and they do affect how we think and feel and what we recognize and what we're able to see. Um, So can I read you a couple of poems? I've had, as we've been talking, uh, various poems have been coming into mind. And one of the ones was one I had thought uh, earlier that I might want to open with, and we're we're well past opening. But I have a poem from earlier, uh, which is called Optimism. And I, I think it's relevant to this point in the conversation. I wrote it with the environment in mind, but also my personal need in mind. It had, it had both behind it at the time that I wrote this. Optimism. More and more, I have come to admire resilience. Not the simple resistance of a pillow whose foam returns over and over to the same shape, but the sinuous tenacity of a tree finding the light newly blocked on one side, it turns in another. A blind intelligence, true, but out of such persistence arose turtles, rivers, mitochondria, figs, all this resinous, unretractable earth. So there is that poem And I also want to give you a poem that I co-translated but did not write. It's a thousand years old, written by um, the great woman poet of Japanese literature, Izumi Shikibu, who lived in the Heian court in the year 1000. 
And most of my life, I've thought of this poem as a poem about the necessity of being permeable. And only this morning did I see it as also a poem about optimism. It's very short, 31 syllables in the Japanese, five lines in in English. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. Um, when I when I translated this, I had all of the words, I had all the images, and I couldn't quite understand the meaning. I just understood a great poem was there. Um, I worked with a Japanese collaborator, Mariko Aratani, and we would do word for word Japanese into English. And when the penny finally dropped, after a week of studying it, I finally understood it. And then I was able to bring it into, into these English words. And what I understood was that it is a poem about not walling yourself up too tightly. If you are afraid of cold winds, if you are afraid of grief, sorrow, loss, fear, anxiety, every, every one of the emotions that we human beings so often try to push away from ourselves because they do not feel um, comfortable, you will also be walling yourself off from the radiance, from awakening. The moonlight in Japanese poetry often means the fullness of things, but of course it is also a trope for Buddhist awakening. And so, you know, just this morning, poems always have multiple meanings. They can be understood different ways in different contexts at different times in your life. And it stunned me. It surprised me that only this morning did I realize, oh, that's also a poem about optimism. Uh, so here it is again. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. And so maybe it is only when your house is ruined that the moon will come into it. Um, I also have a poem about surprise, but maybe that's enough poetry for this moment. Up to you. <laughs> no, I, I, um, as you were reading that poem, I, I remembered that for me, after I left the Zen Center and started, found myself, you know, doing work in a, in a corporate setting that, uh, that, that one of the core gifts, I think, of of Zen and Buddhism and maybe of poems like you just read is shifting our uh, relationship with, with pain and difficulty. And that that was so present and unique to the kind of conventional business world where the, the assumption was pain bad, you know, don't look, don't look there. And somehow opening, opening to that. Yeah having a different a different relationship was a major major shift and a kind of feeling feeling some of that in that optimistic poem that you just read well you've just named a theme that has run through my poetry from the beginning until now and i think that's because it is fundamental as you just said to the work that poetry does which is uh, you probably remember from our time at Zen Center, there was a phrase uh, that was 
uh, much, much repeated in those years. I don't know if it still is. Uh, say yes to everything. And learning to say yes to what is difficult was for me a lifelong task, has been not only the task that the world asks of us, but the task I wanted to learn how to do, how to live a 360-degree human life and understand that that is indeed, if you are going to live at all, you will have to be open to every possible weather of our existence. And, and this theme has run through my work uh, from beginning to end. And it is indeed the path that poems show us. Poetry offers, as Buddhist practice offers, a way to stay inside the difficult moment and understand that it too leads to the moonlight coming through the ruined house's roof. And it is the beauty of poems married to the difficult circumstances which so often provoke them into existence mm -hmm. that lets you feel that a life of alloy, a life of hybridity, a life of the mixed is fuller, more satisfying, more interesting than a life of, you know, not even the sweet, but actually the saccharine um, that is so often uh, what our culture proposes. Um, and, you know, the saccharine is not only uh, bad for you, but it is delusional. And, but it's mostly simply dissatisfying to me um, to look in only one direction without your eyes ever moving the retinas tire the the cells um in your in your eyes glaze over with exhaustion we need change to refresh us and we need reality which includes both the amazement of awe and the terror of something snapping in the woods behind you when you're not quite sure what it's going to be and the grief of inevitable losses. Mm -hmm. This is the terrain of poems, is to say, oh yeah, yeah, I want to include that also. I must include that also. Mm -hmm. Because what a human awareness wants and a human heart-mind wants is the fullness of what the world actually will bring, whether we want it or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I noticed that my... Um the the phrase that i was anticipating when you talked about the the often uh used phrase at zen center which i think is parallel to the the one you named is um it's good for your practice oh. <laughs> which 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 in in some way you know is essentially it was used pretty much any time anything was painful or disappointing it's good for it's good for your practice. So it's a kind of saying. It's a, another way of saying yes, in, in, mm. uh, maybe in a slightly slightly different way. And then there was that other wonderful word, which is just to say, "That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. <laughs> Interest 
like surprise. What's wonderful about interest is it is an opening of a portal because to be surprised or to be interested or to be curious, all of these are states of mind and being in which we are outside of judgment. They are prior to judgment. And there is a great purity and joy in the taking in of things. Now, judgment, I also have a poem about that. I have a poem about so many things. Um, You know, judgment is interesting to me because as much as Zen and Buddhism often proposes um, uh, uh, you know that the way to opening is to av- avoid picking and choosing that famous phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the perfect way is not difficult, just avoid picking and choosing. Mm-hmm. But of course, we pick and choose all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think the perfect way doesn't mean becoming stupid or apathetic or non-discerning, discernment is one of you know, the, the great qualities of, of all of the paramitas, is to recognize um, when your foot is falling into quicksand and when your foot is landing on something that allows you to take the next step forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not to be attached to these judgments, these recognitions. It is just, oh, this moment, this moment, this moment. So it's information, and information is interesting to us and delicious to us. It is uh, from from infancy. We are we are uh, evolution has created in human beings a creature who wants to find the world interesting. And sometimes wants to find the world amazing and sometimes wants to drop off body and mind and be beyond all forms of judgment or weighing just inside and extending without boundary in each moment into the absolutely unnameable fullness and emptiness Mm -hmm. that existence Mm -hmm. is. Those moments don't last. Mm -hmm. We come back from them to the world of picking and choosing, saying, ah, I think I'll make rice for uh, the monastic lunch this morning, or I think I'll make white beans for lunch today. Um, And, you know, that's that's necessary too. You were a head cook, weren't you? Were were you head cook at Tassajara? I was. Uh, Yeah, I remember that. I was completely surprised, talk about surprise, that I kept being asked to do different jobs in the kitchen <laughs> uh, from uh, that summer that I first met you. Uh, I was the dishwasher, and uh, and then I was on the kitchen crew, and then I was the assistant to the head cook for a year, and then I was the head cook. And man, I feel like I grew up in the Zen kitchen. Um, and it was also surprising as a almost like a, a training in seeing work, the world of work through completely different lens, that it was some strange combination of um, letting go mm. and service as well as 
this very high standard of what great, good, tasty vegetarian food is like, but but somehow held lightly. It's almost hard to, and I think um, I've spent my life in some way uh, aspiring to work in that way and to try to teach others to work in that in that way. But it's still a bit of a bit of a mystery. What mm. what all was what all was happening there? Well, I was uh, be, being a, a young feminist when I was at Tassajara. I think I was the only woman student who never did any time in the kitchen at Tassajara. And of course, uh, the karmic result of that was when I uh, moved to Green Gulch in 1979 and Zen Center was just opening Green's restaurant, I was immediately assigned to work in the kitchen at Green's. And I arrived there and head cook Deb Madison, who was an old, old friend at that point, said, oh, Jane, it's so wonderful to see you. Remind remind me uh, your history with cooking at Zen Center. And I said, Deb, I don't know how to hold a knife. And she turned white and then she taught me how to hold a knife. And I cooked at Greens for its first three years of dinners. <laughs> wow. wow. Well, well, this seems like a perfect setup for a poem about surprise. Ah, we will have that then. All right. So everything, everything described in this poem is true. I wanted to be surprised. To such a request, the world is obliging. In just the past week, a rotund porcupine who seemed equally startled by me. The man who swallowed a tiny microphone to record the sounds of his body, not considering beforehand how he might remove it. A cabbage and mustard sandwich on marbled bread. How easily the large spiders were caught with a clear plastic cup surprised even them. I don't know why I was surprised every time love started or ended, or why each time a new fossil, earth-like planet, or war, or that no one kept being there when the doorknob had clearly. What should not have been so surprising, my error after error, recognized when appearing on the faces of others. What did not surprise enough? My daily expectation that anything would continue, and then that so much did continue when so much did not. Small rivulets still flowing downhill when it wasn't raining. A sister's birthday. Also, the stubborn, courteous persistence that even today Please means please. Good morning is still understood as good morning. And that when I wake up, the window's distant mountain remains a mountain. The borrowed city around me is still a city and standing. It's alleys and markets, offices of dentists, drugstore, liquor store, Chevron. It's library that charges a happy surprise. No fine for overdue books. Borges, Baldwin, Zimborska, Morrison, Kavafi.
Well, thank you. I'm a little surprised. I don't know why, just that my heart is kind of bursting open being here with you this morning and your your generosity and the lifetimes that you and I have known each other. So uh, thank you. You're very welcome. I think this, I, I, I also want to go on and on. I feel like we're just getting started. So maybe this is part one. <laughs> and another conversation to follow at some point. Yeah. Is there anything at all that you would like to say or do or read or as a way of um, closing this, this section? Well, I'll, I'll close with one more poem because poets always like to close with poems. Um, you know, there, there are things... One of the things maybe we can talk about next time is um, an idea that in some email or other passed back and forth, which is um, uh, the permeability of, of selves, because none of us is only one self, uh, the nature of what is self, what is not self, um, uh, the portals that connect the two and lead between mm -hmm. them, uh, the fluidity of pronouns, you know, in poetry, you can say I, and it means we, and you can mm -hmm. say we, and it can mean human, non-human, universes, galaxies. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to close with an intimate poem uh, having to do with this house and room that I sit in and a kind of um, calibration of our personal lives and the large of the lives. Right out my, my window, um, there is a redwood tree, second growth redwood tree. We also share a hometown, Mark and I, and, and it is a town that was logged over to rebuild San Francisco after the 1906 earthquake and fire. But redwood trees have a way of coming back. And one has been coming back near this house. Um, I will never remove it. Someday its trunk will get large enough that it and the house will be having an even more intimate conversation than they do now. Um, but it was here first. And I think that's important. So I will close with this poem called simply Tree. It is foolish to let a young redwood grow next to a house. Even in this one lifetime, you will have to choose that great calm being, this clutter of soup pots and books. Already the first branch tips brush at the window. Softly, calmly, immensity taps at your life. Well, Jane, uh, thank you. And what a, what a treat and delight uh, to get to spend this time with you. And let's do it again. Thank you, Mark. Um, good luck with everything. And I hope that everyone listening today um, has... Um, a bit of immensity tapping at their windows, even if it might eventually break them. Listen in each week for interviews, teachings, and guided meditations. You'll receive supportive tools for creating more meaningful work and mindfulness practices to develop yourself, to influence your organization, and to help change the world. Thank you for listening.